You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. ThemeZoom co-founder Russell Wright goes on the record online. There's a reason that words are being used together in clusters or groupings. When they're being used together in clusters and groupings, they are themes that are very, very likely related to your market. There's very, very real business applications with that kind of stuff. Today we have a one-on-one interview with ThemeZoom co-founder Russell Wright. Uh, it is uh, easily uh, the most compelling interview I've ever done on this program uh, about search engine optimization, and quite possibly uh, one of the most compelling conversations I've ever had uh, in the last three years that I've been producing this show with anyone about new media and how to integrate new media into organizational communications. Uh, Russell is going to share with you Uh, how to build an SEO strategy for organizational communications. He's going to talk to you about how to build a business case for online communications, and he's going to distinguish between and assign different levels of value to uh, communications or conversations that ensue online and research that is available on an archival basis uh, via the web. It comes to you with one or two edits, and I'm going to play it for you in its entirety after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom. Tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Russell Wright, Thank you so much for joining us. Quite welcome. Thank you for having me. Sure. You bet. Now, I want to drill down and talk about you know, some of the more technical aspects of search. But before we do, just at a very high level, if, if I'm a business person or involved with some sort of an NGO or you know, nonprofit organization, something like that, and, uh, and I know that I need to do something to you know, make my website more visible on search – but the truth is I, I don't have any budget. I, I, I don't have any resources. Uh, what, what, at the most basic level, what do I need? Without a budget? Oh, you're throwing me a curveball, huh? <laughs> well, what, at the most basic level, you need to be aware that uh, checking to see where your traffic's coming from and what ideas and concepts that traffic is using to arrive on your site can ultimately be a, a cost-effective way of growing your business either incrementally or in its entirety over whatever period of time or goal that you set for yourself. In other words, tracking, tracking, and more tracking. Well, and, and what, how do I do that? What are some tools I can use to do that that are just free and available? Well, these days I'm recommending uh, Google uh, Webmaster Tools as one potential thing for beginners. I mean, we're, you said budget, so that's the curveball I'm working with here. If you have a budget, you're going to want to work with um, – the Webmaster tools, specifically Google Analytics, I would recommend for beginners. Um, Google Analytics was uh, kind of uh, ha- has co-opted Urchin and other early tracking tools and, and metrics tools and weblog file tools that most of us use during the early years of the web. And so these are very, very refined and, and you know tried, tested, and true under battle conditions. And Google Analytics is free, basically. So, um, so it's not the thing is, when you, when you look use, at uh-huh. Google Analytics or, or, or Google Webmaster Tools, obviously there's a lot of information in there. What's the most important information, and, and how do I apply it? Well, specifically to my trade, I'm a little biased. So what's important to me is, is um, bounces. And you want people to stay on your site uh, for a significant amount of time, which is the ability to provide your visitors with quality and uh, useful content can be determined by those types of things. Also, you want to start watching for where your traffic is coming from and the keywords specifically, what, what I focus all my energy on with my corporate and mid, mid-level uh, business clients is uh, you know, the, the keywords and the tail progressions 
Um, and again, in a very simple way, you just want to be aware of what words people are typing in when they end up finding your site and reading your material. Uh, you know, obviously, recently we saw uh, this new website, Cool, C-U-I-L, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of buzz about that, which died oh, yeah. pretty quickly. But let me ask you, just generally speaking, not really even related to Cool, do you think Google's at all vulnerable? Can they be unseated? <laughs> well, you really are throwing me some curveballs today. You're going from business on a budget to taking down the largest, one of the largest companies on earth with a, uh, with a speck of dust, huh? Um, let me just say that I think C-U-I-L, Cule, Cule, I believe that's how Anna is pronouncing it. Uh, just to tell that story a little bit, you know, if you go to C-U-I-L.com, search on something like 121 billion web pages or something massive. The idea, Anna Patterson, first of all, is written into and on one of the major patents at Google that has to do with something called the co-occurrence matrix. And I don't know how technical our audience is. So I'll just keep it really simple. The bottom line is that she's kind of a whiz, and I think she's pretty cool myself. Um, I don't say that about a lot of technologists. Um, what she was able to do is come up with an easier way to uh, make sure that people aren't keyword stuffing or spamming the Google database with huge – like saying, remember we were talking about how words are the most important thing to watch to determine who's landing on your website? A lot of people were abusing that and using the same word too many times. Okay, on purpose in order just to you know get high rankings, and that can be problematic because uh, you basically have thousands and thousands of websites that are being indexed in Google, and you need to find a way to think for these robots that determine how these pages are ranked to think more like human beings, right? So she created a little algorithm called co-occurrence, and it was very promising because it the idea behind it was that you should be able to read a page kind of like a human being writes or talks, which is you don't have the same word over and over again. You have different kinds of words that are almost that word, similar to it, and would be useful kind of like you and I having this conversation right now. Okay, and that was called the co-occurrence matrix. So from what I understand, she's working very, uh, she's no longer working for Google, and she's branched off to uh, build something that exploits Google's weaknesses. And essentially, the pretense is that Google's weaknesses are its inability to index deeper pages in the database. We can talk about this at another show or whatever. I don't know how technical the audience is. But the bottom line is, if she does attempt to exploit the depth finder, if you will, of the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages at the bottom, it's almost like having the Library of Congress and stacking all the books up in a gigantic pile in the center of the library. Well, Google, at least to us, pretty much only exposes um, the top 100 books on that giant pile, okay? In fact, you can test that yourself, and we can, you know, share with listeners how to do that. You, you, really, can only just, you can really only see the top 1,000 books. Sorry, I said 100. Well, her idea is, like, let's go down to the bottom of the pile and let's show everybody what's going on all the way down to the bottom of the pile. Another search engine called Dipsy a couple years ago, which we haven't heard much from, was trying to do the same thing with multiple depths of search. So to answer your question, do I think that that could give Google a run for their money? Um, I'm not really sure, because the unique selling proposition or position in that, in that space is kind of geekdom. In other words, how many people listening to this call really knew that Google only revealed, you know, 1,000 of the best unique pages? And that's the real question. And, and is that a thing? And are the search results actually truly better than Google's? I mean, these are the questions on the table, right? I mean, what would what would it take to get an entire culture that has been branded with Google seared into their frontal lobes every day on a single blank Zen homepage to move that homepage over to a database that claims to provide better and deeper information? I mean, that's a huge question, don't you think? Yeah, but, I, I mean, Google did it with, uh, with Yahoo. They did. I'm, I'm not. <laughs> and I guess the question is, how did they pull that off? You know, I think we would have to look into that business model and determine, like, what is it that they did to make themselves different and stand out? And the fact of the matter is that they were using neuropsychology. I mean, Yahoo was just too cluttered overall. And Yahoo is still focused on providing promotional information and ads in places that Google was unwilling to compromise. And so as a result, it gained a lot of trust because Google had a choice. They had a choice to 
sellout and put ads in places that were annoying and irrit- irritating to the to the neuro you know economics of the usage of the page, or to leave it blank and not make money right now and go for the long term strategic profit by not selling out. To of course they had pay per click, but they slowly developed that and they carefully placed that based on testing, testing, and more testing. Whereas Yahoo, quite honestly, even in the early years, was placing stuff everywhere to, for everyone in any location to the highest bidder. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, that the users that did what Google was doing, even the homepage, didn't start having additional buttons and links and tabs on it for years. And each one was carefully deliberated for weeks before it was even placed on the page. And that's something very interesting to pay attention to. And if Anak and her team can come up with something like with Cule that really just completely blows away all the user behaviors and all the branding, then I think that, you know, she, she has something there. Otherwise, she, she might have been better off going for corp, um, tech summarization and, and services that are useful, you know, at the corporate level rather than going up against a, you know, search-to-consumer model. Uh, so my opinion. So I was uh, talking to um, some folks at iPressroom this morning, and, and many of them were fairly cynical in their outlook about uh, prospects for cool. What are your prospects well, yeah. for them? You think uh, they're... <laughs> if Anna's listening to this, <laughs> um, I, here's, what, here's, here's what I want to say about it, okay, because I, I know there's a possibility that you could hear this. Um, the, the bottom line is this. Um, she is doing what I love to do, is, which is to go for the impossible. I can't think of a more impossible task than to take on one of the largest uh, companies out there in not only search, but um, data, you know, uh, you know <laughs> data mining, basically. And so uh, to answer that question, what I would say is that I love the fact that she's performing the impossible or attempting to, to do it. And as a result, whatever she does accomplish, even if it's not to topple Goliath, if it's not to move a mountain of data with a speck of dust, um, it will be something extraordinary. I just personally don't feel it's going to be to bring, you know, the, the green giant to its knees. I just, now, I don't now think you mentioned uh, that uh, she was responsible for this, for this co-occurrence matrix, which I guess oh, yeah, is... She's on, the, she's on several patents, in fact, uh, in ThemeZoom members area and other places. In fact, these, these patents are all available for the public. I'm happy to send you links that show those are available for anybody to look at online. They're not, uh, they're free. You can see where she is um, listed as as the person on the patent for co-occurrence, and, and a variety of other things. It's not just the co-occurrence matrix. There's other important mathematical equations necessary to, you know, essentially she's one of those PhDs and, and a team of PhDs that um, we're trying to make sure that garbage doesn't float to the top. Only the cream does, as far as, you know, information. Well, actually, if you, send, if you uh-huh. send those links, I'll, I'll go ahead and include them in the show notes. Oh, but, sure, uh, absolutely. Just, just at a very it. high level... What does it mean, co-occurrence matrix? Um, co-occurrence matrix is better off explained to you by my programmer team, and I want everybody on this uh, podcast making sure that you understand that I am not a um, mathematician, that they work for me. <laughs> so those of you who are out there and you know who you are, <laughs> who are search expert, you know, alg- algorithmist experts, um, I'm going to just give a very, very superficial uh, uh, explanation in terms of application what the co-occurrence matrix is to give, and I'm going to do that by example. And again, the advanced among you, this is a very, very superficial uh, explanation of it. But the bottom line is that, and this was used early on, I think, in search engine world and, and you know at the conferences and the rest. The bottom line is that if you are talking about for on your website, if you are using the word uh, President George, okay, which is a three-word keyword phrase, and uh, you are trying to determine how co-occurrent you're trying to determine whether or not using the word White House with the term George W. Bush or President George, you're trying to determine how many times the White House keyword appears on pages that also contain the phrase George Bush or President George Bush. And what the co-occurrence matrix was uh, supposed to do was prevent um, keyword spamming or phrase spamming by making the algorithm making it easier for the algorithm to determine other words, not just repetition of the same word, that were also contained on tons of pages that were talking about President George Bush. You understand what I'm saying? 
So in other words, if 35% of the entire, all the pages on the Internet that contain the word George Bush or President George Bush also contain the word White House, then what you do is you have a co-occurrence trend. Okay? And remember, the word White House does not contain the keyword George Bush or President George Bush in it. It's a completely different and isolated term, and yet it's often a trend and often mentioned across thousands of pages uh, on the Internet. Now, what, ha- what happens when you have a whole bunch of keywords like that that are on similar pages at varying percentages, what you then have is you have a keyword cluster, what, what our proprietary technology calls a theme cluster. Once you know those co-current percentages, once you know the relationships across the, all the search engines or the specific search engines, you have an idea of what uh, co-current keywords are all within that matrix together, and you can actually use those to your advantage because there's a reason that words are being used together in clusters or groupings. When they're being used together in clusters and groupings, they are themes that are very, very likely related to your market. There's very, very real business applications with that kind of stuff. They're related to uh, basically helping you get higher rankings. Okay, so that's really what what co-occurrences use in the application side of things. We're talking to Russell Wright of ThemeZoom. Uh, Russell, what about the Mahalo approach, the idea that you know, search could, could be social? Is it scalable? Okay. We need to be very careful. I knew you were going to throw me these curveballs because you're a great interviewer. Um, <laughs> let's talk for a second about social uh, keywords versus business keywords. You have to do that. The reason why is that uh, keywords in the social environment are folksonomic. Okay? So keywords in a social environment have to do with how users and U- UGC or user-generated content uh, how users decide to label and tag folksonomically their topics, themes, files, PDFs, videos, and the rest. Okay. Now, what's interesting about that is how people choose to name things is pretty arbitrary and oftentimes extremely ambiguous. So what you have on the Internet, if you can imagine this gigantic pile of books, just like we did at the Library of Congress, and you have all the, quote, official piles of books that are named, you know, somewhat in some kind of business order. And then you have the magazines and magazine racks that are kind of all arbitrarily named. And then you have people's personal files, you know, being dumped from the waste cans out of their personal home offices and stuff on that pile. You have all this. And yeah, of course, they're tagging them, but they're tagging them and naming them with keywords uh, in their own particular, almost as if they, they're organizing at home. Now, can you imagine your, your labeling system in your office over there trying to merge with my labeling system over here at my office, what are the chances that we don't think any, anything alike and that we don't organize our data and our keywords at all alike? It's a very high possibility, right? Well, yeah, but you, you would think that, uh, you know, the most popular terminology would, would flow to the top. Oh, you mean like folksonomy clouds or keyword clouds on those blog sites? Sure, <laughs> something like yeah. that. Okay. okay. Um, and I'm saying that, yes, that's very likely true. And so my opinion is that, um, I have no problem with folksonomy and keywords because what you do is you do see social patterns emerge. But then we're, we're not really at that point talking about um, uh, keyword research per se. We're talking about a blend of folksonomy research. And yes, you can then begin. My opinion is that you begin with business application. In other words, you begin with your business model first and find out what keywords people are using in this context behaviorally within the, um, self, within the confidence gap on the search engines. And then you keep in mind that social keywords are about listening. They're about help desk. This is in the recent book, Groundswell, by Charlene um, Shee uh, from uh, Forrester Research. What you really find out is that the corporate and business applications of folksonomy um, are primarily, primarily to listen to what your market, your audience is actually uh, trying to say about their needs, their wants, and their desires. So the way that we handle it is we use the folksonomic keywords and we determine where they have converted into actual business application. And what you do is you do that based on cost per click value. So what, I'm, what we're finding out is that anywhere from uh, two months to a year, you will see terms in a market that are new, what we call neologisms, transforming from folksonomy into what I call business or mainstream keyword research. 
right now we're still I'm still distinguishing between the two because of so much confusion out there on how to use user generated media um, and social media because I feel like there's a very deep misunderstanding about social media right now and its business applications for the most part. And so what I'm trying to do with my clients is help them understand that first deal with your market keyword clusters first. Okay, first deal with the, the keywords that have literally dollar values tied to them, what we call total search market value. If I go over to social media or folksonomic terms and I start finding out that there is cost per click on those terms, then those double both as social or folksonomic keywords as well as search market value keywords. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I know you differentiate between market research and keyword research, right? Absolutely. And that's, see, that's what makes us view things differently. This is why we must view folksonomic terms different than um, keyword or market-driven keyword terms. And this is important because, you know, you go to the TED conference and, and hang out with some of those guys like Jonathan, who's tracking every single social keyword happening on the net in real time, like feelings and mapping them and watching the feelings of the whole Internet in real time, different emotions popping up. And that's great. And my question is, what is the business application of that? The business application has been used right now in the dating environment. But for the most part, uh, a large number of those keyword terms do not have dollar values tied to them. You can't, you know, staple a dollar bill on each one of those terms because they haven't been used yet in business applications. So what we're trying to show people is that you have to go to the top of your vertical. You have to swallow your mountain of keywords whole. What we mean by that is simply don't think small. You have to think just like Anna Patterson does, which is, you know, go for the biggest, gigantic, most powerful thing that you could possibly imagine to do and do it better. And what's really ironic about that is a lot of the times it's a lot easier than you think it is to own every single keyword and theme cluster in your entire market. It's shocking sometimes, actually. See, we started to find out that Google and the other search engines, when you're doing it right, the more keywords you go for by under your top-level themes and clusters instead of just individual keywords, the easier it is to rank across hundreds of ideas simultaneously because you can formulate a plan that helps you literally swallow your entire market. In other words, when you think big, it's easier to rank for more terms for less money. What, um, what do you think the impact of mobile devices will be on search? Um, I think mobile devices connects the left brain of market intelligence and market terms, that what I call um, money keywords, that is, keywords that have proven to have a cost associated with them, to the world of social media, uh, user-generated media, uh, as well as the... the uh, interconnectedness that's happening right now in, in the social, what I call social networking. In other words, you're going to see um, a huge amount of Twitter-type behavior, and it'll be a while before people fully understand the business applications of that, you know, like what's happening right now at, at the search engine conference and the rest. There's a lot of talk about Twitter, and yet people really don't understand the power of Twitter. They don't understand that that Twitter literally is the speck of dust that can move a mountain of data if you know how to use it, okay, literally. I mean, if you know, if you know how to properly use Twitter and to use the appropriate keyword and the people are using tiny URL to, you know, to point to links with Twitter and the rest, they don't know that there's options for keyword URLs and the rest. My point here is that we're going to be seeing a world where social currency and exchange begins to blend with market currency and exchange. And what's going to happen is there's a lot of contradictions between those two worlds right now. And as you can see in business, I've, I talk to clients every day who are very, very confused about what to do about social media. And I'll find out that they're spending tens of thousands of dollars preparing for social media, but they haven't fully, completely comprehended their market when it comes to regular keyword research or regular business. And what's really amazing is that um, you can take all the research that you've done with keyword research, uh, you know, with themes on the regular search engines, and then move them over to social media. When you, set up with your, when you set up your social media profiles, when you create your official reputation management, knowing the words and the theme clusters in your money market or your search, total search market value is going to be very, very helpful within social media. And quite frankly, when it comes to that kind of stuff and when it comes to mobile devices and the rest, things don't change that much. As a CEO, when I Twitter, 
I actually use keywords that I know have money tied to them in my Twitter account. And when that Twitter goes out to widgets, such as grounds, you know, such as uh, clearspring.com and some of the widgets that are on literally hundreds of websites, I know that what I'm saying is being listened to because I'm an expert in my field and that it's being passed around. Not only that, it's passing around URLs that have keywords tied to it. You see what I'm saying? So, so give us, not give that, us a... It's not that user-generated content is different than keyword motivation. It's just that when you know who you are, you can de- disseminate that from the broadest scale all the way back down to the granular world of social media and mobile devices. Give us a practical tip. You mentioned uh, using keywords in the URLs as an alternative to tiny URL. How would somebody do that? Well, yeah. I mean, again, what we've had here recently, and again, I'm sure that many people who are technologists will have some ideas. Uh, you know, people use tiny URL for Twitter, and I'm actually looking at other kinds of devices and things that are coming out right now that I, I can't really reveal right here, and, and I'm working on one of them. But when you're, the idea of moving a mountain of data with a speck of dust, it is, you know, Twittering someone at a, at a SES conference and knowing that your widget on friend feed is being passed around to, you know, 2,000 fan sites. And not only that, those widgets are actually spiderable and indexable because you've created appropriate HTML tagging. There's all kinds of things that makes your head spin that's happening right now. What I'm saying is that um, you can actually use information. Don't use Twitter lightly. If you're a CEO of a company, you know, make sure what you use what we call level two and level three, you know, communication. In other words, be official with what it is that you're doing and include your keywords and your topics. Start to develop that habit, habit right now with Twitter. Make sure that you know the kinds of words and interests that your market who is following you as an expert are actually interested in. And when you Twitter, make a comment that's very informal but also very uh, professional and provide information to your group of followers. Speak to them as if they're your friends and as if they depend upon you to learn new and interesting things in the market. And when you use a tiny URL, and we're working on actually a project right now that will allow um, specific keywords. There are a couple devices out there. You can use tinyurl.com for now. There's a few other things out there. Just check around. And when you link, link to a video, link to something interesting, link to an article on your blog, but very specifically, use that keyword in your Twitter and make sure that pass-through link is keyworded if you can. Use tiny URL and then point to your index in your, either your folksonomic or primary keyword terms on that page. You okay? mentioned... Also, um... I would, here's a practical tip. Think bigger than Twitter, guys. This is something that I learned from my partner over at technologygoddess.com. You want to think bigger. You want to use a widget such as um, ClearSpring. And you want to use uh, things like friend feed to pass your Twitter through. And you're using Twitter not just to update your friends on, you know, what kind of coffee you just got at Starbucks and, you know, that you just got off the airport at the search engine conference, which is one I got today. You want to use Twitter to update your user base, your membership base, your raving fans. You want to update them not on the trivial, but on the informational, on the educational. And you want that update to pass through hundreds of widgets that are disseminated across hundreds of websites on your level one and level two networks throughout the internet. Okay. You keep using that uh, that term, level one and level two. What, what do you mean? Okay. Um, your primary website, which is your business purpose, that is your unique selling position, your unique selling um, uh, profit, you know, your, your unique selling uh, product and service, whatever that is, or your unique selling purpose, rather, is what I was trying to remember. I don't care if you're a nonprofit. I don't care if you're a major Fortune 500 company. What we have here is a top-level focus, which is your core website, and the content and the linking and the information on that site should be official content that's signed off by the company. Everybody agrees that's your purpose and your intention. You understand who you are and what you're selling. Your primary network is the network of sites that surrounds or points back to your core or main website. Now, those sites can pass PageRank, which we don't have to get into right now, but they can increase the ranking on the search engines for various keywords, or they may be social media or user-generated media sites. They may be your own company's reputation-managed official social media profiles. They may be the web, you know, maybe the the official corporate Facebook account, maybe those things, Okay. But the point is that your primary network 
has has one thing that's important about it. You have it has to be brandable. You can't be embarrassed by anything that you put on it. It has to be officially signed off by the company, uh, you know, content manager. It has to be real and authentic. No fake profiles. No bogus spam. And again, I know most corporations out there um, probably would never do this. But your secondary network is the bookmarking facilities, the all the crazy linking schemes that people are actually trying to perform out there to get high rankings. Don't ever use non-branded, questionable spam techniques uh, and point those links off of those sites to your primary website. Don't ever do that. If those techniques are going to be used, such as bookmarking technologies, uh, you know, linking technologies that are perhaps automated, only use those on the secondary network and only point those links to your primary network. In other words, to back up, for example, your Facebook profile, that's your corporate Facebook profile, or your LinkedIn profile, or whatever services that you might, you know, dump through Yahoo Tubes, you know, to determine what, you know, the best matrix of your social matrix actually is, okay? In other words, level one sites should be official, approved content, at least 75% unique content, pointing back to your primary purpose and intention. Level two networks, if you want to engage in them, can be more questionable, perhaps shorter uh, links, perhaps more unofficial content supporting your primary network. Does that make sense? So what you're saying is um, that uh, if you were going to use Delicious to uh, link to your web pages with specific keywords, uh, that's not a good idea on your corporate site, but it is okay to your Facebook profile. What I'm saying is that if those delicious bookmarks and the rest are official and real and they're carefully thought out, uh, you can go ahead and use those. But what I'm also saying is that if you're if you have some an SEO firm out there that's out there doing questionable things, okay, specifically bulk bookmarking, and there's no real keyword thought you know put into it, and there's no official kind of uh, you know plan for that, then yes, only use those to back up your your primary network. Don't point directly to your primary site. In other words, if you're going to have a company go out there and do what's called auto bookmarking, there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's things like auto digging. There's the bait and switch stuff going on when it comes to uh, dig and link bait. Link bait is a very hot topic. I'm sure you're familiar with that. A lot of the SEO conferences don't do that. I mean, link bait. It, like one of the conferences I attended at PubCon is just is completely nuts. I mean, these kids in there teaching the conference are saying like, "I got an idea. Let's come up with this really, really great article, and then leave it there for a week, and then switch it over to something on credit repair." <laughs> and it's like, talk about irking your brand followers. I mean, that's what you call, what I call level two behavior. Okay, that's your secondary network behavior. If you're going to do that stuff, I'm not going to try to put guys who are doing that for companies out of business, okay? I'm just saying that a strategy like that is not going to earn you any friends or any security with your brand followers. Okay, you don't, you don't want to bait and switch on your primary network. And if you do, you're an amateur. That's all that I'm saying. Now, if any of us who are creating user-generated content uh, have inevitably found our content appear on these spam blogs or splogs that are totally incoherent and, and with all yeah. these links in different directions. What is that? What's going on? <laughs> it's funny because I had Erica from Technology Goddess just ping me two days ago uh, telling me that, you know, oh, my God, somebody's scraping my content directly and sticking it on the blog and, and this and that. When we looked at it, there wasn't even – it was all no follow. You know, we had our, our primary inbound link person look at it. It was all no follow. There wasn't anything happening on that. Here's the thing I want to, to emphasize here, because everybody's got this anxiety about duplicate content. You know what I mean? Don't, I'm probably going to get some pushback on this from, you know, some of the greats out there, but I'm just going to say, the amount of time you spend worrying on dupe content, if the energy that you put in worrying about all that stuff goes to creating incredibly viral, passionate, brand-focused, primary network content that can't be found anywhere else, that's, that's very, very unique and, and has a lot of integrity. If you spend the energy that we worry, if you spend the energy that you use worrying about dupe content and, and technical duplication and put it into developing fantastic content focused on your theme clusters and your top-level vertical market themes, forget about it. There's, there's no hope for, you can't use level two methods like that, which is um, blog scraping and it's called mashup and all that stuff, and provide conversion and high-level repeat visitors. 
I've done testing where I found out that, you know, level two scraping and link passing down at those lower levels, uh, although they may get some ranking for some terms, the bounce rate on those sites and the conversion on those sites is nil and becoming worse. I mean, they, they don't have much conversion. They're not going to stand the test of time because what's going to happen when Google launches uh, Friend Connect is that they're effectively going to turn the entire Internet into a social media platform. <laughs> and nobody, nobody even sees this coming. They have no idea what's coming. What's coming is that effectively the two halves of the brain, market exchange and social exchange, are going to become a third entity, something completely new. And it will be a historical shift in the nature of consciousness and the nature of how the web works as well as how business is done. And so preparing for Google Connect, where individual reputation embedded not only in the search engines, but, on, but in communication from one webmaster to the other, people are going to need to know each other. Okay, now what's going to happen is the algorithms that Google use are going to incorporate this social aspect. It's already starting to happen. They're already experimenting with it. Okay, so people who have spent the last 10 years... <laughs> generating mashup, you know, scrapes, content, duplication, and keyword swiping methods to get rankings for bait-and-switch techniques and other kinds of level two techniques are going to find themselves in a fairly um, <laughs> unprofitable position. Okay, now you can do that kind of stuff on a very, very, very large scale, but with some of the stuff that I see happening with Google right now and what they're doing, what they're working with, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna make tons of money. The amount of time and energy you spend creating technology to, technologies to scrape and spit out artificial content um, is you know there's a lot more you can do with that energy, which is to create a real business and create real relationships across the different uh, you know. Uh, keyword modalities, both folksonomic and uh, vertical. So how does um, uh, Google's recent release of the social graph open API play into this, um, this prediction that you're making? Um, what's amazing about this is that where you have a culture that is visually interfacing with data, also called the Hawthorne effect, you have a culture that is becoming conscious. Okay, and right now we are in the blind data era in which data is fairly uh, ambiguous and the disambiguation process. In other words, the ability to uh, really apply data on a day-to-day -day basis is not easy for, say, the CEO or for the vice president of a company. What they basically have to do is, you know, they have their little, you know, tin can telephone over to the IT department or to the marketing department, and they're having these conversations. And these conversations are based on data that, is fairly difficult right now for them to analyze. What we're going to see is the ability to interpret and act on, that is actionable, act on new information and input in real time is going to become easier and easier because of this kind of widgetry and graphical interface. I mean, I deal with this on a daily basis uh, with ThemeZoom, and this is one of the, the, the main challenges we had, which is to make technology visual. Because the user interface, and again, Ruby and all these other kinds of applications that have come out have made this much, much easier. I mean, let's be honest, okay? What the CEO wants is absolute power and control over all data and input going into his business model. What's happening? What are the sensors saying? How many people signed up for my business today? How many people opted in? How many people, and what keywords do they use to opt in? And what does this picture look like? Give me a big, gigantic overview holographic interface so I can act on this data because if you can see the picture and it's broken down to you in colors and you know and, and numbers then you can make action based on your frontal lobes That's right the I mean the, the, the objective is to allocate resources against uh, forward-looking prospects yeah or not only that like what how what marketing is this is where I'm really big on on analytics because I'm, I'm a huge metrics guy okay if it can be tested it can be improved the Hawthorne effect allows collaboration because anybody who participates in making something better starts to have fun doing it. And that's, whether it's, that's true whether it's a business or whether it's your marketing department or whether it's the bottom line in, in your ROI. So what I'm saying is that when, what we're going to see over the next two to three years is what we now consider to be optional, which is testing, testing, and more testing, is not only going to be mandatory and essential, but it's also going to be easy and fun. And if you really start talking to the guys at Google, 
you know, and really looking at what's happening, user interface, that is direct application of data without going through the nightmare of data analysis, which is very abstract for most. If you ever talk to a, a really um, skilled data analyst, they don't really think in pictures. Like our, our theme Zoom programmer, Sue Bell, who designed the major database application, suddenly we realized the difficulty that we were having communicating is that I'm a visionary and I like visual interfaces. I like to, you know, have my Star Trek enterprise kind of bridge. You know, I like to see the pictures of things. You show me a pie chart or some basic data flow charts, I'm fine, graphic interface. But if you start going into abstract details of numbers, that, you know, over on the reflective brain, you start getting into algebra and calculus, I'm going to start to glaze over because I want to know what it means and how to act on it right now in my marketing campaign. Great. I had 72,000 people come to my site last night, and only 25 of those bought my product. Okay, and the product is $2,400 each. What does that mean for my ROI and my outspend? Just give me the three business forensics. Give me the three primary models. Oh, yeah, and put that in a picture that everybody on my team can understand so that we can act the very next day, not a week later at the board room, not a month later at the board of directors meeting, like tomorrow. <laughs> and graphical interfaces and visual interfaces, including for both folksonomic social media as well as direct business application, is going to be the standard um, you know, protocol within the next two to four years. It'll be easy for everybody to interface with this kind of data. Let's talk for just a minute about local search. What do you think the future of, of, of local mobile search is? This is a huge topic. And, uh, and yeah, I think that we know where this is going. Let me just, um, let me just put it this way. The amount of conversion and uh, the, the, yeah, the amount of conversion and ROI return on investment when we've just even implemented a few local uh, conver- you know local keywords into major campaigns, both in the banking industry, some of our clients in the bankruptcy and banking industry, and the rest. As soon as we started covering, first of all, it's incredibly easy right now to rank for local destinations. For keywords, And when you know what you're doing within what I talked about earlier, your theme and keyword clusters, and you really thought carefully about which keywords are worth the most amount of money and, and in what cluster arrangement, and then you map that onto the demographics of the grid, that is, onto the local areas where, or cities where you may have businesses or you may want to be applying, um, you know, this data, uh, our conversion has gone through the roof. And it, it's significant. We're talking into the tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, in some of the banking and bankruptcy, um, you know, clients that we have. Now, you wanted to connect that to mobile. Okay, well, <laughs> we're going to see a huge play for mobile local destinations. I mean, you have all these devices that are coming out, GPS, Garmin, all the new things that are happening. You have the iPhone, all this. And, of course, I would strongly recommend that people who are not making their sites, uh, you know, mobile-friendly, start really seriously thinking about that right now. I mean, this is stuff that we're looking into right now for both conversion and, and widgetry and MoFuse and, and these different kinds of things. What we need to do is really make sure that you're prepared for what's coming. I, don't, I think we're only seeing the beginning of accessing, again, this, this falls back into the realm of the social networking as well as mobile networking that we were talking about earlier. It is time for business owners to start preparing for that reality. A lot of local restaurants here that we're working with are already finding this. They're already finding they're getting traffic from GPS systems and from um, cell, you know, from phone devices and the rest. And they're actually starting to keep keep a track on that. You're going to see a lot of opportunities in marketing as well to be submitted to directories that have nothing to do with the web, but have to do with you know global positioning and 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 these different kinds of things. So it's a huge opportunity. And quite honestly, I'm still coming to terms with what the implications with Folksonomy and uh, mobile local search will be. We're uh, talking to Russell Wright uh, with ThemeZoom, and we're, we're about to wrap it up. But before we do, I just want to uh, ask a final question, Russell. Uh, you mentioned um, some, you speculated on where search might be headed, and you mentioned uh, Friend Connect. Um, is user ratings the, the future of search, um, or, or, or do you think social search and algorithmic search will always be two separate beasts? I think that the, <laughs> I'm going to be careful what I say here, 
Um, I have to tell you that it's the human species that is transforming right now. It's not necessarily search. My prediction is that we will see a a connection between the creative storytelling aspect of the human brain and the data analyst in the human brain. That is the granular number crunching uh, aspect. And the fact of the matter is, is that social media is great, but if you can't find official hardcore data during your data mining ventures on the search engines, then you're not really, then the, then the tool doesn't really work for you. In other words, Google still has to serve up the most relevant data. And notice I didn't say the most contemporary data. Okay, this is where, you know, Anna Patterson and Kuhl and all that comes in. We need to be sure that we understand the difference between data archiving and communicating. Okay, and communication is about the right brain, if you will, that is the storytelling need to connect with everyone else out there and share a common story versus finding the appropriate and accurate data within the Library of Congress. Both are needs that human beings have, and both are extremely different. And what's happening right now for the business owner in this new era is they have this grab bag of opportunity, and they don't know how to sort those things out. My suggestion is that you sort them out very specifically. You keep social media over here, and you keep technical search over here, and you realize the only point on that Venn diagram where that sweet spot is, is where they convert, is the words being used to describe and find business. So my opinion is that social search will remain very, very different, but there will be widgets that integrate those two things, you know, to connect those two things. But technical search will remain a necessity because data will be increasing, not decreasing. And that's why Cule is trying to take on that mountain of data. And the person who figures out how to, you know, sort out the contemporary dynamic data and leave it over here on the left side while effectively archiving the more permanent data so everybody else can effectively use it is going to win the search engine game. Russell Wright from ThemeZoom, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Hey, this is Ben Toth, iPressroom. Uh, we're going to try something a little bit different and break with the format a little bit. Um, I just got back from Search Engine Strategies Conference in San Jose. And um, these SES conferences, some of the biggest names in search, they gather to educate, meet, and talk shop, especially this one in Silicon Valley where Matt Cutts, Danny Sullivan, they only had to go like 20, 20 miles. Um, now, while I was there, I had a chance to listen to uh, what they were saying as, lo- as well as what all the people gathered, the thousands of participants were saying about what's going on in the world of search and marketing. Now, there's a ton of products out there being represented, but I quickly identified a common theme to most of them. My name is Matt Miller, VP of Sales and Marketing for Uzoom.com. What we do is provide a portal for websites through which their customers can communicate with them. Instant messaging, live chat. Uh, I'm Kim Craig, and my company is NetFactor, and we have invented a tool called Visitor Track. And what it is is a caller ID for your website, and it's for companies that sell to other companies, so it's B2B. And what it does is identify anonymous visitors that come to your website without any registration. So as soon as a, uh, a visitor comes to your website, xyz.com, and they are perusing any page, you're going to be able to tell where they came from, what search engine, how long they've been there, if they're a return customer, was it a URL direct type, was it something that they did organically, was it a PPC? The ultimate goal is that you pass the data over to your sales team. It's, it's, it's a very efficient and effective way for them to be able to quickly get on the phone. And you can also engage them in chat if you see that they have a stumbling block on a particular page. Let's say they're on a page for three minutes. Your average bump time is a minute and a half. All right, well, uh, Uzoom and NetFactor with their visitor track, those are just two of the hundreds of companies taking part in all the sessions, exhibitions, sponsorships, or just taking their sales message straight to the convention center floor. I mean, everyone from, from the likes of Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, all the way down to uh, startups, cutting-edge companies, bleeding-edge companies, and the vendors were all there, and they seemed to share a focus for finding more ways to interact with your web traffic and ultimately to convert them. 
So it's an ROI converter. Now you're increasing your return on your investment. Finding out who you didn't convert, having a higher conversion rate, seeing what people are doing on your site, leveraging the current uh, pay-per-click and Google AdWords and everything that you're doing. So you should start to see a pattern after you use visitor track where you can start to identify which keywords are actually driving your targeted prospects into your pipeline. Instead of them waiting around to answer the phone, and relegating themselves to one phone call, they can handle several chats at once, and you can incentivize them to communicate with a particular customer that is on the website. So, by identifying anonymous visitors and looking at what their behavior is on the website, so if they've looked at 10 pages and they've come multiple times in the past couple weeks, they're pretty interesting. All right, well, we found some pretty interesting people down there and uh, some really cool services, some strange services. Someone was trying to hire out their services as, to uh, ghostwrite your blog. Um, one company I did find really interesting was like.com. Instead of doing textual searches like we're used to on Google, they're trying to launch a visual search engine. My name is Todd Hirschberg. I'm the director of SEO for like.com. We're a visual CSE uh, comparison shopping engine. Uh, we're, uh, as far as we know, the only visual search out there at the moment. We allow consumers to come and they do a search for products, uh, let's say shoes for example, not just by typing in red shoe, but actually by looking at an image of a red shoe, picking the components of that shoe they, they'd like, and actually searching by the visual component that they like. So if there's a red bow on the shoe that they like, draw a little box around that and uh, actually find other shoes with red bows on it. All right, so while it remains to be seen if technologies like that prove commercially viable and end up opening up new methods of search, one thing that's really a sure bet is that one of the cornerstones of web culture is really crumbling away, and that's anonymity. Um, for more detailed analytics, visitor profiling, online chat windows that are prompting you if your browsing stalls out, um, Facebook ads that know what movies you like and what music you listen to, um, real-time information when you load a page and look at a website, you know, the website's back there looking at you. Um, so these online visitors, they're being treated less and less like anonymous clicks. When you're online, you're getting more options than you ever have before, and as you spend more time online and do more things online, for better or worse, the business is moving right along with you. It's coming online too, and it's becoming really clear that for the businesses most focused on being competitive on the web, it's not just about finding new ways to attract your audience, it's about finding new ways to engage them. Alright, this is Ben Toth, I Presser. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.